This is Microdosing with Seifman's short podcast on demystifying the business of psychedelics. Welcome to episode three, Going Public, how to prepare and what you need to know with our host, Seifman's partner, Larry Seifman. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. My name is Larry Zeifman. I'm a partner at Zeifman's, a mid-sized accounting firm, uh, internationally networked through Nexi International. And we have an interest in the psychedelic space. We've had keen interest in the cannabis space. Today, we're joined by Anna Saren of the Canadian Securities Exchange and by Bill O'Hara of Haywood Securities. And we're going to talk a little bit about going public and how to prepare and what you need to know specific to the psychedelic space. So I'm going to ask each of our guests to do a brief introduction of themselves and I'm going to ask Anna to go first. Well, thank you so much, Larry, for this opportunity. My name is Anna Saren. I'm Director of Listings Development with the Canadian Securities Exchange. I'm based out of our West Coast operations. My role with the exchange really is kind of the business development side, getting listings, education, awareness of stakeholders in general. And the psychedelic space has been an interesting space and we have lots coming to us. So that's why I'm here joining this conversation. Thank you, Anna. Bill? Uh, thank you, Larry. My name is Bill O'Hara. I'm a Managing Director, Institutional Equity Sales at Haywood Securities. Haywood is a Canadian-based, independent, full-service investment firm. I'm a member of CIPF. The views I'm going to express on this podcast are mine only. I've been in institutional sales for about 18 years. I specialize in resources, but also originate sort of uh, new investment ideas in emerging spaces, such as blockchain, cannabis, and now psychedelics. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Thanks, Bill. Okay, so let's jump right in. And uh, what I want to hear from each of you is uh, what the level of interest in each of your organizations is in the psychedelic space. Bill, why don't you start? As a full-service broker, we have both institutional clients and retail clients, and Haywood manages about $7 billion under management. And we're starting to see an emerging interest in that space because it's such a new sector, if you will. Uh, The companies are not yet established, and so the size of them are very small and therefore not really suitable for institutional investments. And so just the companies aren't large enough to sustain a big investor like a, like an institution. So we're seeing a lot of retail interest come into the, into the space. You know, people really looking for what's next and what's coming out in the pipeline of uh, psychedelic ideas and, and stories. Thanks, Bill. Anna? Yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking as Bill jumped in there, it's a chicken and egg situation. I think firstly, a lot of the interest comes from the fact that we had the biggest influx of retail investors come to the market in probably a generation or two um, because of the cannabis sector. So we finally got that, you know, next generation of retail investor that came to market. And that next generation um, of investor loved the cannabis space. They understood it. You know, it's a lot less technical than the mining space per se. It really got a lot of people on their discount brokerage account or with full service brokers. They wanted to trade. They were learning about it. And I feel like this is the next step. This is something that intrigues them. So when I say chicken and egg situation, you know, when a retail market is interested in the sector, it's going to bring companies to the capital market. And the companies are going to go to people like Bill O'Hara to raise capital and in turn come to us as a platform to go public. Thanks. Are you seeing any movement at all in the institutions? You know, before we kind of all went under lockdown in the new year, the cannabis space was having a bit of a a fleshing out period. A huge amount of the family offices, as well as institutional investors that were standing on the sidelines waiting for the real fundamentals to show up for these companies, they were ready to write checks. So it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out. I'm not sure how they're going to approach this. They might take the same stance where they want to wait, watch for the fundamentals, see what these companies are going to do, see who the big ones are going to become, and step in at that point, or if they feel like maybe they missed an opportunity in the cannabis space and jump in a bit earlier. 
I think Anna's right. We're starting to see people on the sidelines looking at it. And, and as a result, there are now starting to be created as we speak, dedicated psychedelic funds that are raising money themselves to invest in coming psychedelic stories. I think this space will evolve to be a biotech sort of healthcare play anyway. And you will see the larger funds that are more knowledgeable in that regard that are already established in healthcare will migrate some of their money into these, into these uh, stories that are using just psychedelic molecules to create new drugs. You made the comment about perhaps missing the play um, in the early days in the cannabis space. And I'm wondering if that's part of the institution's interest because they did tend to come into the cannabis play a little bit late and miss some of the big run-ups. It's a different kind of play here. It's not, the excitement in cannabis was largely wreck at the beginning. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that this is that kind of play in terms of the psychedelics. It's largely, again, a, a wellness and, and mental health story. It'll evolve into that anyway. And I think that that's a lot different than a wreck play where there's, there's lots of excitement at the beginning. We've had that initial excitement. Now people are taking a little breather here and starting to see what's on the horizon for these stories. With the Illegal Substance Act, with the molecules that they're using, which are illegal, there is a difference between cannabis and what's happening now with psychedelics because they're getting exemptions in the, by the FDA that allows them to study these uh, from a medical point of view. And so that's, that's where it again comes into the biotech side of things versus rec plays. Yeah, I was, I was going to say kind of on that note of, um, you know, the purpose behind it, there's, there's three main reasons that a company looks to go public. And I think it's important to remember that as a basis of this conversation, because there's lots of plays out there that are and will always remain private companies. You know, the, you're, you're doing it as a company to either raise capital for an exit strategy for your existing investors um, or for liquidity purposes. And so the purpose of the go public process is for one of those three reasons, sometimes it's all three. The exit strategy is typically going to be for a larger company where the, they've built it to a certain scale. And now it's a, you know, it's a liquidity exit strategy for their existing shareholders. You know, for these more, um, you know, small to mid cap companies that are in a growth period, it's the opportunity to um, raise capital. And, and one way is if you go public to go back to market in future rounds is much easier if you're following kind of your disclosure requirements and your security regulations. So it gives a company a platform to be able to raise capital down the road. Um, a lot of the institutions uh, will rarely, unless they own outright, you know, part of the play, a lot of them will not invest in a company until they've met, you know, till they've gone public. So they say, look, if you can go public and meet kind of your disclosure requirements and get public and get your shareholders and get liquidity, then we'll take a look at the fundamentals of the company as well as the secondary market. So the institutions, I think, will wait until we see more of these public plays before they'll, they'll take a chance on the issue of whether to go public or not. I imagine you're seeing companies that are not yet sure if they should be going public. And I uh, appreciate, Anna, your comments about the different reasons to go public or the option to stay private. One of the issues that, Anna, you raised was the issue of follow-on offerings in the public market, that it can be easier. What can get complicated is where the stock price is lingering, becomes an orphaned public company with, with no play. How does the CSE first uh, address that issue? And then I'll ask Bill how Haywood is proposing to address that issue uh, in the psychedelic space, perhaps with a contrast to what we've seen in the, uh, in the cannabis space. 
Well, just to clarify, sorry, you mean um, companies that, that have a business model that doesn't work out and then kind of are, are sitting in hibernation mode? Is that what you mean? Um, even if the business model has worked out, there just isn't enough of a following in the stock. And the stock price la languishes to the point where it's really difficult to go to do an offering at the current stock price because the price is, you know, so low that it doesn't really reflect current value. Totally. You know, I remind people all the time that are looking to go public, you could have the best business in the world, but if the retail secondary market isn't interested, there's no value in going public. And I think that's why we're seeing so much excitement around the psychedelic space is the retail market wants to see it. What we did see, and this is why they are, you know, speculative investments is what we call down rounds. And I'm sure Bill has seen his fair share of that, but the market as a whole, maybe the company is a great company, but the market as a whole or that sector is suffering and they have to go raise capital at a lower rate and it becomes the spiral for the company. As far as uh, how the CSC views those things, unfortunately, that is part of the small cap space. We really want to foster those companies that are genuinely good fundamental companies with good operations that have good business models because the hope is that they would be able to weather any of those cycles in the sector. Bill? I come from the mining space and so it's very cyclical. So you know, when it's out of favor, it's out of favor, regardless of how good the company is. But at Haywood, we work with small cap from private stage to, you know, north of 200 to $300 million market caps. That's where our specialty lies. Um, and so we, we sort of just pick our winners, our horses, and we just stay with them and, and, and guide them through and continue. We have research we, that we um, publish on, on the names that we do cover. And so we just have to be there um, during these periods where they might be out of favor. And Anna's right, you know, Going public is a is has its advantages, but sometimes it's you know it's 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 onerous too because it is a, a nuisance, and especially especially amongst less sophisticated investors, which you know they will not understand what's happening in the market and be calling the company directly, which distracts the company from doing their day job. And uh, I've I've seen firsthand how um, how onerous that can be upon the management teams. Hey, Bill, can I ask you a question? Certainly. What do you think the impact is of with the, the evolution of the discount brokerage world? And, and we're seeing it immensely right now. I think Robinhood quoted three yeah. notes in the past few months. So as a professional, and, and I always suggest that if people want to invest in a speculative market, that they should be speaking to a professional because you guys, you, you, this is what you do for a living and you have teams that help do your due diligence. Um, what do you think that has changed or how has that changed these types of sectors as they come to market when we have so many investors that are making their own decisions and not getting that professional advice? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's difficult and you can see a lot of um, disjointedness between company fundamentals and stock price uh, because of that fact, Anna. And um, if it's, you know, there's this website, I believe, that tracks the largest trading volume on Robinhood for the day. So they can say, okay, here's the stocks that Robinhood's trading today. And if they're on the downside, people will sell them. And it's not, there's no fundamental aspect to that decision. It's just, it's technical and it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's just a flow, and, you know, and so, so sometimes, again, you know, the flow of funds will determine the price of a stock. It's not its own merits or its fundamentals uh, until such time that, you know, it is recognized. And that's, that's very frustrating uh, to be holding a stock that is spectacular value, but no one cares about that space. And, and it will be influenced heavily by all kinds of social media now that's happening. And um, like, it's a good question to, to find out or figure out, you know, how much of a price movement in a day or a week or a month is influenced by the retail movement of, of the money 
versus institutional. And I can tell you at the margin, it's largely the retail group that moves prices because institutional is sticky and they will, they will buy and hold. So, you know, sometimes you'll see a stock price go up and down 10%, but if you do the dollar trade value, it's like $50,000 in total, which is not a lot of money, but it can swing at 10%. And so that's very, uh, I would say, uh, disarming as a, as a CEO, but also you have to recognize what is actually happening and not worry about that. Again, go back to do what you're doing. And I would say so, it's scary. It's scary from a market standpoint when you consider that, you know, you, so often retail investors are investing out of emotion uh, and not it. necessarily fundamentals. And that's what's really moving the stock price. That's right. And then again, then it'll, then it'll just it'll, it'll <laughs> snowball on itself and people just go, just sell it. I mean, these, this, you know, they won't get the advice that they need. And so they just, as Anna was saying, so they just sell it through their discount broker. Without any, without, any reason, to, without any knowledge why they're selling it. They're just, it's going down. So. Right. If each of you were given the opportunity, um, say, uh, to talk to somebody who's going to come to you about taking their company public, to talk to them six months, a year, even before, or more before that, what would you tell them in order to prepare uh, so that when they do come to you to take their company public, they're really ready for it? I'll go to Bill first. I look at it from a financial perspective. Anna will have her own criteria, I think, in terms of what's necessary for a company. But for me, I look at, okay, what's your business plan? What's your growth plans? What capital do you need to achieve those plans? And how much can be generated from friends and family? And then possibly if they're already revenue generating, is there any cash flow that can be used to fund the business? Until such time as we believe that they need a big capital infusion to facilitate their business plans or capital plans. And you know, we, we also look at the valuations in the market too and what the company feels. Because a lot of times the companies will not have a sense of what their value is or sometimes it's an overinflated uh, sense of what their value is. A lot of times it's, it's about timing for the market of going public, but it's also about what, when you need the capital and what your business plans are, what milestones can you create and how can you see an increase in your value based on the money you're going to raise uh, either through a public route or, or how. Ada, your thoughts? Without being um, too open about different routes, the idealistic way of going public as a company has fostered and done some growth. They've built out their business plan. They've done some seed rounds. They've done their friends and family. And they're really at that place where they're ready to go and do, you know, the raises now are at another level. So they need to go to the market. They need to get in more investors. They need to take that next level of growth. So that's the idealistic way of going public. Typically, when we're dealing with those companies, they've got their bookkeeping. So what they require is two years of audited financials. So it's a fairly simple handover. They work with auditors to get those audited financials. Um, and then from there, what they have to do is a few requirements as in to actually go public, you need 150 shareholders and you need to have minimum working capital requirements. Our wor minimum working capital requirements are typically what you tell us your business plan is. So if you say I need a million dollars, you know, to execute the next 12 months of my business plan, your minimum working capital requirement is a million dollars. Anna, tell us what are you looking for as a as a base for a uh, for a psychedelics company to go on the CSE. So from the exchange perspective, that's a really simple answer, and it's it's every single sector for us. We, you know, we want good companies. We want companies with strong management teams that have experience in the sector that they're in, that have strong teams in capital market experience. Um, you know, that are able to go out and raise capital on a go forward basis um, and that have, you know, a network that can provide them liquidity, you know, on our platform. We just want good, solid companies that come to us that have a long term role in the capital markets. 
Bill? Pretty much similar to Anna. I mean, it always starts with the people and the management team. Um, my view is that this is going to be a biotech mental health play. So it's a just scientific advisory team that's built around it. And then next, of course, as Anna identified as well, is the capital structure of the, of the company. Those are the two most important criteria that I look for in any company. Uh, if those things are wonky, then there's no sense going forward. Drug development is going to be where we see the greatest amount of potential returns for the long term. I'm looking at guys with great IP ability, uh, clinical research, novel ideas in terms of delivery systems, and what indications they're trying to address in terms of depression or addiction or PTSD, etc. On that note, I look forward to working with both of you as we play out this uh, this interesting space uh, and as we help clients to um, to go through the process and go public. Uh, thanks again to both of you, and um, we look forward to doing another podcast in the near future. Thank you. You've been listening to Microdosing with Siphmans. Join us for our next episode, Cannabis versus Psychedelics, a comparative view of the cannabis industry, with our guests, Carl Salink, founder, CEO, director of Hollister Biosciences, Danny Motika, CEO of Cygen Labs, and Dan Cohen, CEO of Pharma Drugs. Have questions or want to learn more? Contact us direct at info at